This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 16th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Deputy Editor Julie Inglefinger. Julie's a pediatric nephrologist who, along with handling a broad array of other manuscripts, has been very involved in COVID-19 issues that affect kids and the kidneys. We've asked Julie to help us today with how to approach therapy for one of the most troubling syndromes associated with COVID-19 in children, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC. But before we do that, let's talk about an article that we published today on the use of an anti-inflammatory medication to treat COVID-19. We've now seen a number of agents that have been employed in an effort to try to dampen the inflammatory response in patients with severe disease, and consequently then to decrease the amount of host damage. How would you summarize what we know up to now? There have been several studies that use a variety of agents that decrease inflammation, and these act through different mechanisms. The studies are largely directed toward the later and more severe stages of disease, where inflammation seems to be an important cause of damage, and viral replication tends to be diminished. The the most successful of these so far have been glucocorticoids, which have been shown to decrease mortality and rapidly became the standard of care. Because these drugs are inexpensive and relatively safe, they've been extensively used worldwide. Several other drug classes have been tested or are currently under investigation. For example, IL-6 inhibitors have undergone several clinical trials with mixed results. Part of the issue in these trials has been the changing background therapy in patients, particularly more recently, the routine use of glucocorticoids. Eric, you raised several important concepts in how we think about new therapies. One has to do with where in the stage of illness a patient is. If they're early versus late, the clinical phenotype where the pathogenesis of the disease may be interruptible by the therapy of interest, such as an anti-inflammatory. There are also issues around cost and access. Glucocorticoids are easily available globally. While some of these newer therapies that are quite targeted have a more limited supply and are quite expensive. This impacts geographic accessibility and also has impacted changing guidelines and standard of care in different communities that then complicates the background care that new therapies and new experiments are performed in to allow us to better understand if another anti-inflammatory adds additional value on top of an already easily accessible one. I suspect that another problem with these sorts of studies is that we don't expect any intervention that decreases inflammation to be a panacea. After all, a lot of damage has already been done at the time. And for other sorts of processes like ARDS, where there's been a lot of damage already, we don't know of anything that easily and rapidly reverses these syndromes. So I think we're pursuing a smaller and smaller piece of the improvement pie. And therefore, studies have to be larger and larger and better and better controlled to see effects. So it gets harder once we have one therapy to see the additional benefit of other therapies. And that speaks to what endpoints these studies have, mortality being one that we like the most but becomes harder and harder to achieve as standard of care improves. So the study we published today was of another anti-inflammatory, tofacitinib, 
What did we learn in this study? Tofacitinib is a Janus kinase or JAK inhibitor. It belongs to a class of molecules that interfere with signaling downstream of cytokines by blocking intracellular pathways. We had already published an earlier trial showing that another JAK inhibitor, baricitinib, decreased the time that patients with moderate to severe disease who also were on remdesivir took to improve. That trial was conducted fairly early in the epidemic and largely excluded patients being treated with glucocorticoids. This newer study took place in Brazil between September and December, a time that coincided with new clinical recommendations. So more than three quarters of patients received concomitant glucocorticoids. Patients were enrolled within three days of hospitalization and randomized to treatment with either tofacitinib or placebo on top of their standard therapy. The primary outcome was a composite of clinical deterioration to the point of requiring either high flow oxygen for those who are not already receiving it or mechanical ventilation or ECMO and death. There were about 145 patients in each arm. The composite outcome occurred in 18% of patients who received tofacitinib and 29% of those on placebo. Deaths were also somewhat more frequent in the placebo group, although not statistically significant. Adverse events were fairly similar in both groups, but of course, relatively small study. So we have yet another study that suggests that adding anti-inflammatory agents like glucocorticoids in patients who are hospitalized for moderate to severe disease has some benefit. None of these studies has an enormous effect, and it's still not clear how different agents compare with one another, but there does appear to be a consistent signal. So Eric, I think that these studies, as you suggest, consistently demonstrate that inflammation is part of the pathogenesis, and interrupting this pathway can have benefits. However, we still need to better understand when to blunt the inflammatory response and how do different agents work and work synergistically or not? And I think that the emergence of glucocorticoids has really changed the landscape and standard of care in different ways in different communities that complicate the ability to best determine how a new anti-inflammatory may benefit treatment of COVID. It's very complicated because the communities have such different resources and access to these different therapies. Just to pick up on one thing you just said, Lindsay, one thing we don't know is, do additional agents work because they increase the intensity of dampening inflammation, or do they work because they're blocking different pathways in the host? We really don't have an idea. We're kind of flying blind here. So these are essentially empiric tests of whether or not blocking specific pathways at some rather arbitrary level of inhibition work. I'm not sure there's any alternative to that because we don't have a good model system to study this in. But it's important to remember that small differences in studies might make a difference because the agent is different, the dose is different, the timing is different, and it's hard to tease that out from the sort of amalgamated patient populations. And Eric, I think you suggested already the importance of an agent being utilized when that disease pathogenesis is most active. What I mean by that is an individual who is post an inflammatory event that has caused organ dysfunction may not benefit from an anti-inflammatory. 
And that's why many of these studies with targeted anti-inflammatories like IL-6 inhibitors target patients who have an acute worsening in the inflammatory process versus those who already have injury that has subsided. Today, we also published two studies about potential therapies for MISC, a syndrome that fortunately has been very uncommon. What do we know about the syndrome? Steve, MISC is a syndrome that's still being defined. It's been described from several countries with a total number of cases numbering somewhere in the low thousands, probably. Children present with a hyperinflammatory syndrome consisting of fever, a variety of laboratory markers consistent with inflammation, and severe illness involving at least two organ systems. They should have no other explanation for the syndrome and some evidence of current or recent SARS-CoV-2 infection, either by viral testing or serology. The syndrome can appear quite similar to Kawasaki syndrome, as patients commonly have cardiac involvement with myocarditis or coronary artery aneurysms. Some children with MISC have died, though most have survived. But there's a lot we don't know, ranging from the underlying pathogenesis to the long-term outcomes to be expected in these patients. The two studies we published today discuss short-term therapies for the syndrome. What do we learn from these studies? These are two retrospective observational studies, one in the U.S. and one done in several international sites. They each included a large number of patients, a little more than 500 in one and more than 600 in the other. The investigators used somewhat different methods to collect their data. The U.S. group abstracted data from patients who were identified in a surveillance system, while the international group encouraged participating physicians to enter data onto a form. Each then correlated a variety of outcomes with the therapies that had been utilized. Because these studies weren't randomized, each group used modeling approaches to try to correct for differences among patients. The key question that each group wanted to answer was whether immunomodulatory treatments had an impact on outcomes. In both studies, the majority of patients received intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, either alone or in combination with glucocorticoids. A smaller number were treated with glucocorticoids alone, other classes of immunomodulators, or some combination that included other drugs. The proportions receiving each therapy were fairly different in the two study groups, perhaps reflecting different local practices. And the results, the studies are not precisely comparable because of differences in design and differences in outcomes. But broadly speaking, the U.S. study suggested that combining IVIG with glucocorticoids resulted in better outcomes than IVIG alone, while the international group found no differences among those receiving IVIG alone, glucocorticoids alone, or both in combination. Julie, these were two fairly similar studies. So why do you think they reached different conclusions? There are a number of reasons. First, the two studies actually had different patient populations in some ways obvious and some subtle. The overcoming COVID consortium in the U.S. used only patients in the United States, whereas the best available treatment study, or BATS, consortium encompassed international hospitals, which included at least one large U.S. center. And as Eric noted, the data were collected differently. Beyond that, it's possible that differences in genetic background, given the varied regions of the world represented, may have led to dysregulated immune responses in patients with MISC, but resulted in these populations in 
varied responses to specific types of immunomodulation. Also, and importantly, the patients enrolled presented with MISC at different times during the pandemic. In the US study, there were only patients included who'd been hospitalized during the earlier and smaller waves of the COVID-19 pandemic before any substantial circulation of variants. The BATS investigators reviewed cases that occurred both before and after the emergence of COVID-19 variants in many countries. Thus, the data were from patients who had presented during the first, the second, and the massive third wave of COVID-19 circulation. And also it's possible that the dysregulated hyperimmune response of MISC could vary or change according to the strain of the initial infection, re-exposure to differing or mismatched variants, or prolonged and repetitive exposure over longer periods of virus circulation within a given community. Further and finally, we should remember that these were observational studies, as has been said, and the methods of analysis included various statistical adjustments that differed between the two studies. In the end, a definitive randomized controlled trial would be optimal and probably more than one. Julie, it's interesting to look at these studies and think about where we were at the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak where we had lots of data that looked like this. Because people had not set up randomized controlled trials yet, we were relying on a lot of observational data. And I think looking in retrospect at this point, the quality of information that we got was very variable. Um, It wasn't entirely clear what worked and what didn't. And there were certainly a lot of false leads generated at the time. So I think your skepticism about this is appropriate. Well, I would agree. And in addition, a problem in doing studies and understanding things in children often takes longer. MISC is still rare. Most children who do get COVID-19 are either asymptomatic or have very mild cases. MISC appears late in the course of COVID-19 and often takes people by surprise. So doing randomized trials may be a bit more difficult, yet it's incredibly important. But Julie, MISC is a unique clinical syndrome. Do you think it has a similar pathogenesis as other illnesses in children associated with COVID? I think we don't know the answer to that. It does have similarities to Kawasaki syndrome, which has been recognized for decades and for which the cause and all of the pathogenesis is not yet clear. So you've suggested that the optimal next step is a randomized controlled trial. Do you think we're likely to see these questions answered in such a trial? Well, a randomized controlled trial would not likely include as many patients as the studies just published here that are observational for a variety of reasons, one of which is it's rare and getting parents to enroll children can be problematic. But there is one study already in process 
if anyone wants to know, it's NCT 04898231. It's a multi-site randomized pragmatic comparative effectiveness study of children diagnosed with MISC based out of UC San Diego. In this study, children who've received IVIG but clinically warrant something more, further anti-inflammatory therapy. And these children will be randomized to one of three treatment arms, which are infliximab, glucocorticoids, or anakinra. Further, the trials also will allow for re-randomization to one of the two remaining arms if that's clinically indicated. However, that trial will be completed in December 2023. It won't be quick. And so maybe we'll see the question answered, but I imagine by December 2023, the spectrum we will see of cases of COVID-19 and of MISC may differ substantially from what we're seeing now. I think that the consideration of an RCT is always preferred when we try to define if therapy A works or works better than therapy B. A real challenge, though, is doing a study that is not itself confounded by other factors. And what I mean by that is, Eric, you alluded to the importance of high-quality data and the need for it a year ago earlier in the COVID epidemic, where we had hundreds of thousands to millions of cases that we needed to understand if a new therapy or even an old therapy worked. Here, we have a very rare complication, and that makes it much more difficult to do a prospective high-quality RCT. And there are factors that may interfere with that kind of study that are different, such as time, geography, and genetics, such as the changing genetics of the virus over time, let alone the geographic issues of host genetics. So I think it's very challenging to do a high-quality RCT for MIS-C because it's a rare event. And this then brings in other considerations, particularly time and geography, where one may have different genetics, not only in the host, but also in the virus that is changing through time as we watch variants spread, and in the background standard of care that all have to be accounted for in an RCT. Randomization should minimize it, but it doesn't work as well when there are small numbers. So I applaud the study that you mentioned, and I applaud our investigative community for finding rigorous ways to answer these questions. I think MISI, though, is a very different challenge than treatments for COVID in general. And I would add, because of the similarity to Kawasaki disease and perhaps other things, it may be even more difficult to know what children to enter as time goes by and the pandemic winds down, or we hope winds down. Yet, I think it will be incredibly helpful if the study that's already registered proceeds and is successful, it will give us more guidance. Indeed, the title of one of the two trials we've published this week is the best available treatment study. We are essentially flying by the seat of our pants many times in treating 
this rare syndrome. So best available replaced by a randomized trial would be something we all hope works out. But as you say, Julie, December 2023 is a long way away. So where does that leave physicians who are caring for patients with MISC today? Well, because MISC is rare, we don't want to miss it. Thus, all pediatricians and others who provide medical care to children need to consider the possibility of MISC when seeing children or adolescents who have had known COVID-19 or who might have had an asymptomatic case. It needs to be on everybody's radar. The standard of care, as it is for Kawasaki disease, to which it has, as we've mentioned, some similarities, is the use of IVIG and would require, in most cases, referral for that therapy and rapid treatment. So we need to be aware of the existence of MISC because if it isn't considered, the opportunity for any intervention and excellent supportive care as needed would be missed. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.